Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the show today on what is a beautiful spring morning here in the capital is Rashid Lalu. Rashid is the CEO of Premiership Models, a digital and manufacturing company focusing on an end-to-end service relating to models and has recently secured a Queen's Award. Um, Rashid, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Thank you, Scott. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme with us. I think we should start, Rashid, by addressing the elephants in the room here, and that is the fact that we are recording this in early June 2021. And although we are moving out of social restrictions gradually, we are still somewhat in the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic and have been for the last 14 months here in the UK. Um, So thinking about that and reflecting on this previous year, to what extent has this situation affected you and affected your business, would you say? Um, I would say in a number of ways. Um, probably the first factor, I guess, and I guess a lot of businesses are, the businesses are in that same situation, is not quite knowing what's going to happen. So I, I distinctly remember last March or April when we went into lockdown, thinking, okay, what happens next? Because we've all had, as a business, entrepreneurs um, and CEOs have to deal with the, um, you know, uh, say, for example, the 2008 financial crisis and previous recessions, but with COVID, I think a lot of us didn't know what to expect. So I think it's the uncertainty um, which makes it difficult to plan was the first challenge. Um, what transpired for us was quite different to what we expected. So we expected, obviously, to suffer a drop in business, a drop in turnover, etc. And we had quite the opposite. So um, our financial year is December, which means that would have been December 2020, Mm. um, of which we had nine months or so of COVID. Um, And we managed to grow our business by 25% in that financial year. Um, So that was quite unexpected, I would say. Um, What happened, um, and the reason this happened, I guess, is... um, Part of our um, an element of our business is is the hobby side, which are the kits that we sell uh, for people to build themselves. Um, on that side of things, we saw uh, about a two hundred percent increase in online orders, um, uh, which was totally unexpected, um, and it, that went through pretty much all of uh, all of last financial year. So it started sort of as soon as we went to lockdown, didn't really stop till beginning of this year. Um, so that was um, for us a positive side of it. Um, the second element, I guess, is um, the international nature of the business. Mm. Um, so when I say 200% increase, a lot of that was UK and international. Um, and that, that really helped us because I guess the whole world was closing down 
around the same time. Um, the third element would be none of this would have happened for us if we were not a digital business. Um, and we decided to be, we, we kind of fell into the digital world by accident, even though we're an SME. But 18 years ago, we had our first website. Um, and that kind of, I suppose, gave us an advantage when the rest of the world joined the digital, when our competitors became digital, we were perhaps ahead of the curve. Um, and we've, we've tried to sustain that. So, um, in uh, a few years ago, we launched, went from one website to about to currently six websites. Um, and that's uh, helping us to grow digitally. Um, the downside of the growth was, um, a lot of the kits are made in the UK and Europe. Um, and, the supply chain broke because a lot of the factories had to close. Mm. So um, it was trying to keep clients happy uh, with a broken supply chain, which is not so easy. Um, the way we got around that is by buying a lot of stock early on. Um, as soon as we found out there was a pickup in online orders, we called all the manufacturers and said, we'll buy what you have. Um, so we bought a lot of the kits into stock. Um, and then we diligently sat there and recommended other kids to the client on the basis that they wanted something to keep them busy. So even if they couldn't get the one they wanted, um, they would take something similar to it. Um, so that kind of um, helped us, and we didn't have a lot of um, uh, refunds or cancellation of the online orders. The other side of COVID for us would have been the... Um, custom or ready-made side, which are the more expensive models, mm. um, and bearing in mind 60 to 70%, uh, at least 60% last year of our business was corporate, um, that reduced, um, as the corporates didn't, we're not doing shows, um, and they probably didn't want to spend on, on, on these type of projects during the COVID period. Um, so we saw a decrease in our corporate and an increase in our retail. Um, and definitely an increase in our, in our, in our international side, particularly the U.S. Um, the final effect of COVID on us was uh, adapting as an SME, I suppose, to working remotely, because obviously at some point mm. all the staff had to work from different locations. Um, and the fact that we, um, our telephone system and our IT system is all in the cloud uh, meant that we could still operate. Uh, which uh, which we've now kind of invested more in, knowing that um, this is probably the future. So we even have, um, during last year, um, we recruited two more staff, uh, and one of them was uh, able to work from, from home four days a week, mm. which as an SME we would probably not have offered in the past. On the manufacturing side, uh, we have a, our own workshop in Mauritius, um, and it's interesting for us, I guess, because it gives you a different perspective on things. Uh, so Mauritius is probably one of those situ in one of those situations where um, they didn't pre-order the vaccine or um, didn't have the financial capability to order enough vaccines. So the situation there is different to UK. Um, and last year they closed. Uh, there was a national lockdown. Our factory had closed. Um, and since then it's closed one more time. So 
augmented delay in uh, in uh, manufacturing um, and uh, um, uh, impact on the clients. Um, but as far as the clients are concerned, I guess with COVID this time, they most people are much much more understanding um, than they would have been in the past. So if you say to them, you know, your factory has had to close, um, you're having problems with freight. Um, freight obviously increased during last year and still is this year. Um, uh, therefore, there will be a delay uh, in, 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 in your delivery of your orders. Um, they seem to be more amenable to it than they would have been in the past. Um, and I think that would be the main feature, I think. It's, it's those elements um, and definitely being digital, um, being adaptable, um, and you know, ability to work from anywhere in the world has meant that we managed to to cope with the growth in business while COVID was going on and staff working in all different locations. Mm. And for you personally, when you're sort of working with a team that is scattered around the country, and I'm struggling to hear you. Sorry. Um, so when you're leading a team that's sort of scattered around the globe, as it were, um, is it easy for you to manage people from a distance, would you say? Um, as an SME owner, it's, it's not something we're particularly uh, trained for. Um, myself, I'm, a, I'm an ex-management consultant and I work for global consultancy firms and that seems to be more the norm. But with SMEs, it's, it's not. Um, but I must say, um, as far as we're concerned, the team did pull together um, because obviously we had the increase in demand on one side uh, and we're able to cope. Um, and technology supported us in doing that um, and we all pulled together. Um, it it's, um, kind of tells you that you have the right team working with you. And with regards to remote working practices, of course, it's proven immensely beneficial to your business, but would you say that the integration of that into our working practices over the last 14 months means that the way we're going to do business in this country as a whole is now forever changed and flexible working is going to be here for the long term, do you think? I think so. Um, I mean, I remember I was working for PwC 20 years ago as a management consultant and we did a lot of that type of work whenever in the office. Um, And as an employee, I found that quite strange. Um, Probably kind of helped me that I had been in that situation many moons ago. Um, but I would say uh, it has changed the way companies work, even SMEs, um, and it's unlikely. Um, it, it means that SMEs can give more flexibility to their employees um, with confidence that the business will still run. Um, and I guess the technology that we have in place, whether it's telecoms, whether it's IT, uh, cloud in particular, means that you're able to do that and still run your business. So I do think, to answer your question, going forward, yes, it does give more um, scope for the remote working. Um, but mm. also remote working, we have three agents. Uh, we have one agent in France, um, one agent in U.S., and one in Australia. We have the um, factory in Mauritius. Um, so there's, a, there's always been an element of that in our business. Mm. 
of course, having those elements there from before the pandemic, I imagine has helped immensely in adapting to the challenges of COVID. Um, but when you are sort of connected virtually more than anything else, just because mental health concerns have been greatly amplified by the pandemic, does it make it more difficult keeping on top of things like that and detecting where there might be issues with people's well-being when you are working from a distance? Uh, more than likely. I mean, um, we've seen the difference in terms of the team coming back together and us being in one location, uh, although our business is, is split in about four different locations worldwide. But in terms of the UK, uh, yes, it is easier. Um, um, I, 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 I would say there's been different reactions of staff um, to working remotely in COVID. Some, some of the staff were keen to come back because they didn't quite like the idea of um, being stuck in their flat or house uh, indefinitely um, and working and being on their own. They liked the camaraderie of being in the office uh, uh, and the banter of being in an office environment, I guess. Mm. Um, um, And whilst whilst other staff had um, no particular issues with it, so we probably had a, a bit of both. Um, and because we managed to work together well as a team, I would say we had less of a mental health issue than um, perhaps we would have had otherwise or if the business was struggling during COVID and the staff could see that, that would have had a negative effect on, on everybody's mental health, mm. uh, which thank God we didn't have that and just thinking about the um, immediate future now just before we wrap things up because I am conscious that we are starting to run short of time Um, we are now beginning to move out of COVID social restrictions in the UK but over the next year where is it that you ideally want the business to be Rashid and what is it that you're hoping to achieve by this time in 2022? I would say we probably want to use the points we've learned, the things that's worked for us mm. in the last 12 months, 14 months, um, and emphasize those in the business. So, for example, we want to increase digital investment and recruitment and spend because we feel that it works very well. Um, we, we used um, the COVID period to, to do various studies around our business. Um, currently, we only sell model ships. Um, and we did a, a couple of studies with some master's students from different universities, um, all working remotely again um, for a three-month period. And we looked at other sectors uh, for train models and plane models and car models. Um, and that's concluding um, this month. Um, and we will, as a result of that, be launching um, ourselves into um, these, these different areas, uh, planes, cars, and trains, uh, but using the strength of the knowledge we've gained in the model sector and using the strength of what we've learned in the digital world. So we'll keep investing in systems. So right now we're looking at... Um, we, we, we used a, a CRM system called HubSpot, which was found very useful, uh, which means everybody knows what everybody else is doing. 
uh, particularly great when you have um, staff in five, six different locations worldwide. So we'll keep investing in systems um, to be able to cope with that. Um, and I think that's probably the main um, um, element for us for the next um, 12 months. Um, I'm not too sure how this year pans out, whether we do indeed come out of COVID um, or whether we go into more lockdowns in the future. Um, uh, the, the, the signs seem to be positive, whether it's um, the number of cases or whether it's OECD forecasting uh, sort of 6% growth for the UK economy and the US seems to be growing as well. So uh, I'm going to look at the glass half full <laughs> and work on the basis that uh, uh, you know we, we are going to come out of COVID and the world will recover um, and I'll plan the business accordingly. And hopefully we do see a positive recovery and that positivity that you have there, Rashid, is so, so infectious at this time. And I think it is much needed in the context of the wider industry world as well. Yeah, I think I think business is such as the nature of business. And for SMEs, I guess, you know, you you always have a limitation of resources or financial resources, but you have to do uh, your best with what you have. Um, and there are other factors that have helped. Uh, Sybil has certainly helped in terms of the government offering loans to SMEs, which we have tapped on. Um, the Kickstart scheme has helped. Um, we're currently looking to recruit two people under Kickstart. So the government, I think, has reacted. Um, uh, we haven't had to use furlough, um, but you know, I know that's helped a lot of businesses as well, but we haven't had to um, furlough any of the staff. Uh, but it just feels like this time round, there was a lot of government help um, available. There are various grants available, so we've tapped on some of the grants to do um, studies, uh, various studies such as the ones I mentioned on cars and trains and planes. There's mm-hmm. funding available for that. Uh, we've had help from our bank, um, from one of our banks, Santander, has helped us with their university schemes. So... Um, I guess I guess um, the fact that there's been a lot of uh, government and um, local help um, has meant that we've been able to to use those to plan uh, plan the future of the business to invest in the business, um, and I do hope that we can keep recruit uh, recruiting more staff and um, and growing the business. That's fantastic. And I do wish all of the success in the world to yourself and to premiership models over the course of the next year. And I actually think that as we sort of get into 2022 and begin to understand exactly what shape the economic recovery is taking, it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are getting on. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you, Rashid. It's been a pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the programme today. And coming up next on the show, we're going to be joined by incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the last 14 months and what hopefully is to, uh, to come over the, uh, the next year. Um, that will be coming up on the show next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. 
Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work and those elements are true of all leaders ideas the ability to build a team to have confidence in that team uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice sometimes at the most difficult times and you know the leaders council those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.